Hello and welcome to the third episode of season three of the Redbrook Recap podcast. My name is Jasmine Sandar and I am the deputy editor of Redbrook Newspaper, which is the University of Birmingham student publication. In this episode, which was supposed to be released in February, but is being released a little bit into March, um, we have our culture and common editors crossover to talk about the current culture wars that are happening on a global scale. They discuss everything from Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita to Jimmy Carr's recent Netflix comedy special, His Dark Materials. So sit back, relax and enjoy listening. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Red Brick Recap. Um, I'm Colette Fountain, I'm one of the four comment editors and I'm here with... Emily Baldwin, I'm one of the other comment editors. And Leah Renz from Culture. So when we were asked to do the podcast, we were trying to brainstorm some ideas of how comment and culture could link. And one of the most obvious choices for us was to do with the current culture wars, cancel culture, especially in light of Jimmy Carr's recent comedy special, which had some extremely upsetting and frustrating jokes within it. Um, So on that note, we will just be adding a trigger warning to this podcast. Um, Given that we'll be talking about J.K. Rowling, there will be mention of transphobia, um, anti-Semitism, hate against the traveller community, mentions of violence against women and other dark themes. Um, Yeah, so on that note, we're just going to start talking about um, Jimmy Carr's recent comedy special. So Leah over at Culture, they had a couple articles about this, and I know some of our writers were also interested in it. Um, So Leah, do you want to just give an overview of what the special said and maybe what some of the opinions you guys got through about it were? Yeah, sure, Emily. So we've had um, an article recently talking about Jimmy Carr's recent Netflix special called his dark material, which centers around the most uh, disturbing and controversial jokes of his career, which has included, as you can imagine, a lot of really hurtful and offensive material, which really strike a fine line between comedy or just straight up racism and anti-Semitism. The joke recently that's caught the most attention concerned the genocide of members of the traveller community during the Holocaust. And we had Amnesty International and a lot of other people expressing their concern and anger at this joke and the fact that Netflix is letting it air to a worldwide audience. Yeah, and so we had a writer telling us about all of this and also other controversial comments Jimmy Carr has made in the past about dwarfs and uh, I think FGM, female genital mutilation. So really intense topics. But then on the other side, uh, we've also, or perhaps not the other side, but just a slightly different perspective. Um, We recently had an interview with Shazia Mertzer, um, a comedian from Birmingham on her coconut tour and our interviewer Sonny Elliott also asked for her opinion on the Jimmy Carr controversy and what she thought about his comments. Yeah so in response to our writer's question uh, I'd say in your career you aren't exactly a stranger to dark humour following Jimmy Carr's recent controversy after his Netflix special do you think he went too far? Do you have anything to say about this situation? And Shazia replied that I'm a comedian, I believe in freedom of speech, 
the thing is I've made jokes about 9-11 things that people might be upset by might be offended by to some people the things I've said aren't acceptable and she goes on to say that she feels it's difficult for her perhaps to condemn it given some of the material she's used in the past and that she totally believes in the freedom of speech and yeah I think we're now going to open this up and discuss with the culture editors what we think about the situation. Um, this is a topic I've discussed quite a lot with my housemates because I watched the comedy special out of interest after seeing all of the controversy and Jimmy Carr isn't a comedian I'm sort of particularly familiar with but we were sort of discussing within comedy how much you can satirise communities that you aren't a part of. So I feel like Pete Davidson is a good example of this, that Pete Davidson's dad was a firefighter who died in 9-11. And then he has a comedy special, I think it's called Alive from New York. And a lot of the jokes revolve around his dad being in 9-11, which to me doesn't have the same sort of tone deafness as someone that hasn't been affected by that might be. And that was one of the main issues I sort of had when I was watching the Jimmy Carr controversy is he was making jokes about abuse within the Catholic Church and sort of violence against women and misogyny and things like that, but without the understanding of what that actually means to the communities that he's talking about. Um, Whereas I feel like if you're drawing on a place, if you're sort of making light of your own pain and trauma, that's a way for a lot of people to cope. But I think when you're satirizing communities that aren't that you aren't a part of that's when it's kind of a gray area where I feel like it starts to lean into just being more offensive yeah I I definitely agree with you Colour. I think that's one of the things that has struck people the most about the JK Rowling things is that Harry Potter and the entire franchise means so much to so many communities and has been adopted in a very like cathartic way I think people are very obsessive and ingrained and it's almost as if they live within the Harry Potter universe themselves. I know like a girl I grew up with used to go to Platform 9 and Three Quarters on set like the beginning of September every year um, for Harry Potter Day and pretend to go to Hogwarts and all these things because it became such a part of the like cultural imagination. They almost became detached from J.K. Rowling herself which invites questions because I personally don't feel comfortable supporting Harry Potter at all now, especially with all the transphobic stuff that JK Rowling has been spouting and saying. Everyone tries to say, well, she has a a good charity or she doesn't make money from these the same way that she used to. But I feel like I can't support any of it, even if it has become bigger than just JK Rowling herself, even if Harry Potter and like all the different franchises and all the different spin-off stories don't even descend from her anymore in the same way that they used to I think it's really hard to 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 detach that for me and I don't know if that's just because I'm close with the communities that are being targeted or if it's because I've grown up in a cancel culture environment where I see someone do something wrong and my way of trying to do that is to or actually don't even think it's the (laughs) cancel culture environment I think it's being quite economically left-wing and therefore the only way that I see that I can make a difference, even if it's just within my own mind, is by detracting money and by being like, I'm not going to give you any clicks anymore. You're not getting any engagement from me because that's the only way that I can visualize actually making a difference is by withdrawing my funds, even though JK Rowling is rich and doesn't need my funds. 
I think that's not just the money side. Like you may not go to Harry Potter world buy more movies or something, but the withdrawing your clicks and the intention and engagement that you give to these people. I think it's a really interesting idea, particularly in this age where you know nothing is free and your attention is the product type thing. Something I find interesting, particularly with the JK Rowling conversation, is with the commercialization of things like that, how much it affects people that are no longer alive. So obviously I know a lot of people are quite anti like John Lennon because he was quite abusive towards women and yeah Michael Jackson is a good example and just authors from sort of the 20th century whether you can still enjoy the things that they produced because they aren't financially benefiting obviously quite often their family will be benefiting but that isn't their family aren't an extension of themselves necessarily it depends on whether they're still living and still benefiting from you purchasing the things that they're producing I think it's it's definitely interesting how although even like if you're a part of these groups that are being targeted and offended or allied within these groups and therefore interested in defending their rights or defending what is going on it's interesting that our like our way of thinking as in just us free here is that the way that we can target this is by not engaging with it and that the fact that they're dead and therefore not making money from it almost makes it easier to like indulge in the literature or watch the films or listen to the music I always think that myself but if I hear Michael Jackson like in Tesco's I'm like oh wait they're playing Michael Jackson I thought we weren't doing that now and then, like I thought we were just not going to engage with it at all but the way that their like financial viability and whether they're going to make money from it is something that really influences I guess that's quite telling of me as a person the fact that the money side comes into it I don't know what that means for me <laughs> does that make me a terrible like capitalist person I hope not I'm trying to be anti-capitalist I don't think it makes you a terrible capitalist um it happens to be the world we live in <laughs> at the minute um <laughs> and yeah I think for me personally there's a difference when the artist has died I guess I think for me, I like to hold a hope that maybe these people can change their mind as well when they're alive and the cancelling done in a kind of, not in a death threat manner, more just as an informative, like this isn't okay and we don't like it, uh, action can change people's minds as well and people's actions Whereas when they're dead, that's, of course, like not really an option. And so I think the cancelling loses the power it has when the people are still alive. I mean, there are a lot of authors that are like part of the canon. And well, that's actually a different discussion, whether <laughs> what we think about the canon. Um, but people like Virginia Woolf, for instance, are notoriously also anti-Semitic. But she's also a big figure for... Um, like the LGBTQ community for um, queer literature. And so I think there's something to be said for taking parts that we like from authors and artists and also whilst also condemning things we don't like about them and making it clear that we don't agree with all of their views. I think sort of something I find hard to reconcile with the JK Rowling controversy in particular 
is we had an article recently in comment um, by Molly Day about Aziz Ansari and I can't remember what year it was, but several years ago, there was someone published an article basically saying that she'd gone on a date with him and then had felt that he'd pressured her into having sex with him when she went back to his apartment, which obviously was quite a big deal at the time. And I think another thing that kind of comes into whether you can separate the art from the artist is how much that art is intertwined with them as the artist. So JK Rowling's political views she expresses freely on Twitter. She, um, I know Daniel Radcliffe wrote, I can't remember which magazine it was for, but he wrote a column condemning her views, which I thought was really important that he did that because a lot of the Harry Potter actors haven't done that. But with Jimmy Carr, that's he's expressing his views on a comedy special on the biggest streaming platform. And people say, oh, just don't watch it. The name of the show is His Dark Materials. If you didn't think it was going to be triggering, that's your own fault. But I think when it's being platformed that much, it's virtually impossible to avoid it. Even if you didn't watch the special, you've surely seen it on the news or on Twitter. But with the Aziz Ansari stuff, that was from his private life. Same when the accusations came out about Louis C.K. um, exposing himself to women on set, which then isn't a question of is it the comedy that's bad? It's that is someone being a bad person. And I find that quite interesting how sort of a lot of the authors it's their books or well not all of them a lot of them it's their personal lives as well but how for like kind of what you were saying Emily for a lot of people Harry Potter is like a safe space but it's J.K. Rowling's views that are tarnishing that it's not the novel itself necessarily depending on what community it is whereas I'm doing American Psycho for my dissertation Brett Easton Ellis has said so many times that it's a satire and it's an irony, ironic book, but the text itself is damaging, but he's trying to claim that his own views aren't, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but just how much it's their own views being put into the art. I feel like that has quite a big dependency on how much you can separate them. Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted to jump off your point about satire. And I've also read American Psycho and it has some extremely graphic descriptions of violence and sexual abuse, I think. And whilst it's clearly written in a way, you you shouldn't really admire the protagonist, but within the novel itself, I I don't believe the protagonist who does these sort of heinous acts is explicitly condemned or I'm not sure he's even oh well no I won't give any spoilers um (laughs) and it's kind of this interesting line between when an author writes something that they know themselves is satirical and they've probably added elements that make it clearly satirical or a joke or whatever um but certain readers won't receive it that way I'm thinking now of this like satirical website called Higher Minority, which was a fake advertising site where they'd say like, hey, here you can get a definitely non-angry black woman or a Muslim woman who is definitely not a terrorist um, uh, created by um, people from these communities to draw attention to the fact of like just having minorities in pictures to make a company seem inclusive when really it's just all for show. 
the problem with this because it's a satire is that some people took it seriously and genuinely wanted to try and hire like queer people of color and all this stuff and I think that can be really the problem where it then almost becomes the thing that it was trying to satirize. Yeah that's definitely made me think about I've seen John Green recently a bit of a throwback I'm sure to our early teens of that one um, but there's a scene in The Fault in Our Stars um, where the two protagonists kiss in the Anne Frank house in Amsterdam. And it's a scene that at the time, I don't remember ha- it having much controversy. And I look back and I think, oh, my gosh, I just read that and didn't question it. Um, but that's not my point. My point is that John Green recently has, one, like owned up to this and realised the like the possible ways that this could be extremely offensive to people but two has become a really big proponent of how once a book is out there, it no longer belongs to the author. It doesn't matter what the author wrote or what the author intended, if it was supposed to be satirical or ironic, there's no way of controlling the reader to understand that it was. I mean, think back to like GCSE poetry when your teacher would tell you that there was a reference or an irony and you would have no idea that that is what they were saying or what that's what they meant to do. Um, and I think there's this, there definitely is a responsibility to be cautious of this because I, there's so many examples. I mean, like, uh, like the Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> like to some people, to a lot of women, I think that film is quite offensive and gaudy and a bit over the top. Whereas to a lot of men, that is genuinely their favorite film and they really want to be like that guy. It doesn't matter what the director intended, if it was supposed to be either way or a mixture of both. Once the art is out there, it can't be controlled by whoever created it. It's controlled by the communities that have adopted it and how they interpret it. That's one of the things I've kind of noticed the most when I've been working on my dissertation, because I'm also doing Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. And one of the main criticisms of that is that I read a critic that basically said that if you were a paedophile, you would not read that book as a satire, or it's not really a satire, but you wouldn't read it as unreliable. And the whole point is that you're led into sympathizing with the narrator, but ultimately, you realise that you're being deceived into liking him, which is the same as American Psycho, where it's only towards the end of the novel that you suddenly think, hang on a second, why am I empathising with a character that is so awful? And it's because of the way it's written. But I know American Psycho was really controversial and a lot of women's groups campaigned. Its original publisher actually ended up breaking contract and not publishing it because of the backlash it got and a women's charity made some of because some of the book got leaked they made the leaked clips their like answering call thing so that when people called the shelter they had to listen to it and a lot of women have said that it made them physically sick and things like that but the novel was supposedly found there's a American or Canadian couple that were like horrible serial killers and the American Psycho was found in their apartment and supposedly she'd never read the novel. It should just, she just had it in the apartment. But that kind of goes with what you were saying with Wolf of Wall Street, where for women reading American Psycho, you have a far more sort of visceral reaction. And even reading Lolita and even sort of contextually, some of the critics I've read that were writing about Lolita in the 1960s say that Lolita herself is to blame 
and that she's the one that initiates it. And there's so many things like that, which is obviously our understanding of grooming and sexual predators is so much better now. But just the way that that can shift, even over sort of 60 years, but it's so dependent on context. Like you said, if you're a woman reading that, it's often, obviously not to, I don't want to oversimplify the issue, but generally it's a lot more upsetting than, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street. A lot of men want to be like Jordan Belfort because he's, rich and margot robbie is his wife yeah i guess the question is maybe we wanted to also talk about censorship and um i guess generally how do we deal with texts for example that are problematic in this way should they still be written can you even stop them being written should they be published should they be published but with trigger warnings i think we'll like move into discussing how we could deal with these texts Yeah, I think that's something that, especially as English students, or when I was younger, I used to be like quite involved in like book blogging and the book bookish communities. And something that would always crop up is stuff about banned books, books that have been banned by certain school boards or stopped being published, especially in the American South, where like certain publication bodies could very easily dominate an entire region and therefore influence the entire market. Um, especially happened with textbooks and things, but also some very famous books. So American Psycho and Lolita, as Colette was talking about, but also more recently, a lot of books about like LGBT, the LGBT community, um, about racism, things like that were often banned by school boards and therefore completely censored from schools. So the one that came to mind for me was one of my favourite books, which is called The Miseducation of Cameron Post. And it's about a girl and it's she just she gets sent to um, conversion therapy by her parents. And it's just a very it's a long spooling narrative about her life. And I remember reading it when I was 16 and it like it really appealed to me and it really spoke to me. But this book was taken off of shelves in one. I think it's a southern school board. I can't remember which one it was, but none of those kids got to read that or have that experience that I had of understanding myself through a text. And I think these issues of censorship and trigger warnings and things like that are so important, but also so easily weaponized if we have certain people in power, for sure. I think something that's particularly interesting about the book community is that I think I first read Lolita when I was 13 or 14, which look at that. Concerning, (laughs) Concerning. Yeah, which looking back was way too young to be reading that. I don't know why... I did that but at the time I wanted to read more classics and I liked Lana Del Rey and she had a song about Lolita so it made sense to me but with films obviously there's ratings I'm not that doesn't stop people from watching things that aren't suitable for their age range but even with video games we have age ratings but books you have young adult or teen but there isn't the same kind of Like I read Stephen King when I was 14 and I don't really see there wasn't really an issue with that and to me anyway but kind of what makes certain books suitable. Jacqueline Wilson was my favourite author growing up and I think a lot of her books were very influential in a lot of ways but I also think when that was all I was consuming it probably wasn't always the best thing for me to be doing. So kind of whether there could be a system for age restricting books in a way that I think films and other things already are 
I definitely had some similar experiences to you, Claire. And I think it was part of being one of these first generations to have such unsupervised internet access. And I don't know if the generation after us had this. I don't know if we just got that crux of our parents not knowing what was going on and me being on Tumblr at 13 years old, Twitter at 12 years old, Instagram at 11 years old, etc., where we had access to these communities and these subcultures, which really idealized certain texts. So like Lolita, I know for sure, especially among like Lana Del Rey fans, um, I was a big fan of the Virgin Suicides. And I must've read that when I was like 14 or 15, which is a harrowing story about a whole family that kill themselves. But I related to it and I was like, yes, this is my favorite book. I love this book. It's so hard hitting. But I was I was like 15 years old and like having to ask my mum for money for the bus. Like it's it's crazy when I think back in hindsight how much access we had. And I wonder now, especially um, how easy it is to pirate films, to pirate books, um, to listen to any kind of music with Spotify. I mean, they're not having to go on to like MP3 school and type letter by letter which song they want to listen to, which. I had to do when I was in my early teens. Um, And I wonder if it's going to make it even worse for people (laughs) um, having access to just so, so much. And regardless of age content, because it's so easy to lie or fake your age or um, just get access to literally anything. I think you can definitely see some sort of societal issues that are really rife among our generation that have stemmed from sort of 12 year old habit so like some of my favorite shows were like Pretty Little Liars, Gossip Girl, the depiction of things like eating disorders they were so harmful to our generation and like early 2000s sorry now I'm going into more film and tv but just in literature as well the way sort of the plus size community is depicted is awful and then now I find it interesting when you've got shows like Euphoria whether in five, 10 years, you'll see a whole generation of people where drug addiction is a lot more rife, obviously it's still an issue now, but whether that'll be a much more prevalent issue, because I also think um, one of the main things when I, I rewatched some of my favourite shows and age gap relationships is such a common theme and I didn't see anything wrong with it. Obviously Lolita is a bit more extreme, but whether... I don't know if we're learning from the mistakes that we made or whether we'll just repeat them and it'll just be different problems in five, 10 years. I definitely am seeing that too with Euphoria. I think back to like Skins, which was big when we, and it had just been uploaded onto Netflix, I think when I was in like my mid-teens and it's really surprising and interesting to me when I'm on TikTok and I see posts and then I go onto the account and they're like 14 year old kids making the exact same mistakes that we did and doing the exact same things. And I know Skins was like so harmful to <laughs> it was great. It was a great show. But the actual narratives and the way it depicted drug use was so harmful. And it's it's kind of upsetting and frustrating to see it happening all over again, because like you can think about like the friendships you've lost or the people you've lost, all of these different things that happened partly, not solely because these are systemic issues, but partly influenced by how certain issues are presented in the media and how easy it is to really want to live that life. And you want to have those experiences 
and you want to see yourself in text, it takes us all the way back to JK Rowling and all of those texts. You want to see yourself in these texts and you want to live these experiences. But sometimes there needs to be some responsibility between whether something is like merely entertaining or if it's also extremely influential and damaging. Um, I think Euphoria is definitely <laughs> showing that to us all over again. And I'm like a victim of it because I'm still watching it and doing my funky eyeliner and pretending that that's my life. <laughs> I think that kind of that distinguishment between entertainment and damaging and influential. I mean, the problem is that there isn't often that line, like often we are entertained by things that are damaging to us. We are influenced by things that we didn't choose to be influenced by. And um, yeah, we read texts that we maybe really admire, but also are really problematic and it's all really tangled together, which make this a really tricky issue. And there's so much more to be said. <laughs> and we definitely hopped between many different topics, um, possibly with not much logic, but I hope you enjoyed this episode, culture comment, remix, mix, <laughs> and we will sign off for now. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Yeah, it was really nice to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rebrit Recap. If you would like to find out more about us as a society, you can follow us on all of our social media at Rebrit Paper. Or you can drop us an email using deputy at redbrickonline.co.uk. In the meantime, all of our writers, section editors and committee will be working towards our next print, issue 1522, which will be released both physically and digitally on Friday the 11th of March 2022. Make sure to pick up a copy on the University of Birmingham's campus or find us online using issue.com. We look forward to seeing you next month with the next episode of the podcast. Bye!